you know, I think we're alive. You think we are? Uh, yeah. Well, then perception is reality, and off we go here. First thing right off the bat, I'd like to, uh, I'm going to welcome the shortwave audience. Uh, I'm producing, uh, not on, not by my... You're not on. I'm not on? Oops. Okay, now I'm on, I hope. There you are. There, I'm now on. Thank you very much. I just wanted to say uh, again really fast that I'm welcoming the shortwave audience. It's not by my doing. Kurt in Arizona has conceived this idea and put us in touch with Worldwide Christian Radio. And we're intending to now be broadcast on shortwave to the Pacific Rim, South America, Europe, Africa, all over the place, which is astonishing in my view. And they wanted me to say how to contact us. Uh, it's cliffsideoffice at gmail.com, cliffsideoffice at gmail.com, or cliffside.org, or Facebook. We're on Facebook. It's what, Cliffside Community Chapel, uh, Dave? Is that where we're uh, Cliffside Community. Cliffside Community, and we're on Podbean. Uh, I also think it's Cliffside Community Chapel. So I wanted to welcome that audience, and I'm going to try to maintain the format that I'm assigned to do as much as I can, so I might go a little faster than usual. Okay, excuse me. July the 11th, 2021, lecture discussion number 143 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, and 2 Kings 23. And that's what we've been doing for, uh, obviously, 143 lectures. So that's a couple of years, almost three years now. So uh, this has been a long little series. And we are back. Uh, We were on a two-week sabbatical. Lecture uh, number 142 is on the 20th of June, for those of you who are trying to find it. And the original plan for this two-week was uh, for Lori and I to replace the two exterior doors. We had one, uh, the entry door and uh, this 72-inch glass slider. Uh, both openings would require that we reframe them. And, of course, that's sheetrock work and trim work and everything else and leveling the entries. And we intended to build a roof awning system on the front door and provide some shelter to attenuate all the snow that pours into that area, infiltration in the entry foyer. So that was the plan. And we always have a plan. And that was our plan. (laughs) (laughs) And usually we're able to accomplish something in our plan when we have a plan. But this time we were able to do nothing. We did nothing. Uh, we moved forward not a measurable distance. There's no calibration device that exists to calculate our progress because it is none. Absolute zero degrees Kelvin, minus 459 degrees Fahrenheit. We had theoretical and absolute motionlessness here in regard to our plan. And lots of contributing factors cause this, too many to address. And, but one of those happened to be the osteosarcoma diagnosis of our sweet, beautiful Abigail Angel. And Abigail is our almost 14-year-old Labrador Retriever, and she has always been a precious blessing to us. She's amazing, and she most likely has bone cancer. Uh, and our time with her now, we know, is shortened, um, but... Uh, we do have this little respite, and that's because the antibiotics and the anti-inflammatories have alleviated the severe symptoms that she had that caused us to take her into the emergency room. Midnight Sun Veterinarian Oppidiamond, for those of you who'd like to know, are fantastic. Our, uh, we have a lady there. Her name is Amanda Irish, Dr. Irish, and she was fantastic. And she thought that these uh, therapeutics might have some impact, and they absolutely did. Abigail has returned to her uh, recent level of strength and vitality. Obviously, she has slowed down, like, just like me, just like Lori, just like all of us. But uh, So she has some of her strength and vitality back, if not all of it, that was immediately prior to the infection. She had a terrible infection. I thought it was an abscessed tooth, and then I realized, no, that, that, that is a bone cancer growth. So she had infection and tenderness, and that always accompanies uh, osteosarcoma. So we're really grateful. Uh, I'm grateful. Lori is as well. We're doing good. With all that said, uh, being that I am currently cemented in the subject of the angelic spiritual realm, which is this huge pile of stuff on the board here that I use that the people on the shortwave radio cannot see. I have a, a big uh, dry erase board behind me, and I use it uh, consistently. And we are in the subject of the angelic spiritual realm as it influences and as it interacts with the human physical world. Some might insist that I'm bogged down here to the point of impasse, but I rise to object 
such is not so. We're not moving fast. There's no breakneck speed. Ooh, time for water. Uh, but uh, it's not uh, Fahrenheit minus 459 by any means. So we are making progress, but a whole bunch remains to be addressed. And for today, though, I'm going to not deviate from my list of the angelic in the human realm. I'm still in the subject. We're still in the list. But mostly because of Abigail's condition and her destiny, I thought it would be a good time to re-enter into the doctrines of the immortality of animals, which is a very controversial subject, of much disagreement, some of it vociferous and if not ferocious, against my position. And I'm aware of that. But essentially, this is the animal kingdom. We have three kingdoms, as you're all aware. We have the angelic kingdom, we have the, the uh, animal kingdom, and the human kingdom. And Abigail is firmly in the animal kingdom. And so we, uh, uh, we're going to go to that today, and specifically the death of animals. And to begin the subject, uh, you've got to immediately ask, one should always ask, it, why do animals die? Or why were animals subjected to physical death? Obviously, animals had and have no culpability. Of the three kingdoms, again, the angelic, the animal, and the human kingdom, the animals did not and did not and do not ever reject their creator. They did not rebel. They did not sin. Their free will does not extend to hatred for their creator God. And we see this reflected at Mark 1.13 when Christ goes and surrounds himself with the wild beasts. And the Holy Spirit descended as a dove descends. That means not the Holy Spirit isn't a dove. It has a spiral system. Why it has that? We'll have to answer that in a later date. But the Holy Spirit descended as a dove descends and sent and urged Christ into the wilderness and Jesus was with the wild animals. That's what he was. That's what he did. He's with the wild animals and 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 the that's also where the faithful angels ministered to him. That's Mark 1, 10 through 13. This was the testing of Satan, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And the testing of Satan, of Christ, was to, had one significant characteristic to it, and that was that it revealed the deity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ. This is fully God in, in humanity, adding, having added humanity. And that just brings to light the ministering of the angels really quickly. Let's cover that. The angels came down and ministered to him after his, after he dismissed and, and dispatched Satan. They ministered to him. How do you minister to Christ? I've asked that question throughout my so-called religious career here. And uh, you minister to Christ by believing him. And it, this demonstrates that the angels recognized, okay, something is special has happened here. And they came down. The unfallen, the faithful angels came down and ministered to Christ. And for today, just note that the wild animals also gathered to their creator. Now, why would they do that? And they did it before, if I have the chronology right, and I believe I did. They did it before. The wild animals knew immediately when Christ was there that, that this is God. This is our creator. And all they go. He, they knew that this was God himself in the flesh. The angels were made aware of that fact after Christ expels Satan, Matthew 4.10. When Christ says to Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God, he's talking about himself. And he gets rid of Satan. And the angels go, oh my. What we just witnessed was not an enhanced human being. But what we've witnessed is God himself. And they came down and ministered to him by believing him. When he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, that's exactly what the angels did. That's ministering to him. Believing him. It wasn't a suggestion uh, to Satan. Christ declared himself to be God with that statement. You shall worship me, he could have said. But he said, the Lord's your God, lest there be any mistake. Matthew 4.11 brings clarity then. The devil left him, and then there's this fantastic behold there. Behold, I have to jump up and down. The whole house shakes because who built this thing? Not me. I'm just trying to fix it. 
Behold, then the angels came and ministered, believed him, and gathered to Christ. That's a behold. There's something different happened. Every time you see a behold, you have to say, what is the behold? Well, the behold is this now, <coughs> excuse me again, this behold is this, the, the fact that the angels come down after he dispatches Satan and says, you shall worship the Lord your God to Satan. Identifying himself. But behold, is the, is the unfallen, the faithful angels came. They learned from this testing that Christ was God himself. In other words, the angels who remained in their estate, in their tent, the word means tent or dwelling, also has a connotation of body uh, because of tent. Those angels learned and they, they now knew what the animals already had known because the animals gathered to him immediately. The angels came after Satan was dispatched or cast away. Satan had, a, had an understanding there immediately that he was up against somebody who could cast him at will. Now, I recognize that the majority of theological commentation does not accept my position on Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. I, I got that. The preponderance of Bible scholarship sides uh, with the evolutionary atheists. That's what they've decided to do as to the composition of animals. They do not believe animals have any significant composition. And the atheists, the evolutionary atheists, believe the absolute same thing. And, and don't be surprised by that. The church, especially the contemporary church of this, uh, what I believe is the Laodicean age, Laodicea has prominence today, which means that we have a godless, we have a Christless church today, overwhelmingly. The biggest churches in this country do not declare Christ to be God. It's really rare. So the contemporary church of this Laodicean age was eager to allow evolutionary monism a portal into the church, and here's where they have done it. And they did it on purpose. And I have, I have, I should just read this really fast, because I'm going to have to get to it eventually anyway, so let's see if I can do it. Ah, yeah. Psalm uh, uh, 49.20. Here's a commentary. This refrain is the main point of the psalm. This concept is Ecclesiastes 3.19. While man and beast both die, man's spirit lives on, the, on eternally, but beasts have no life after death. That is the commentary out of this Bible, which was supposedly written by uh, James MacArthur. Is it James MacArthur? Am I right about that? What's the, what's the guy in California? I don't know. John MacArthur. Okay. Anyway, that's the commentary that, that, anim, that animals cease to exist upon death. Uh, that, that is universal. And I know that. And that is a concession to evolutionary monism, atheism. And it's, uh, how do I put it? Do I have a word that I can say that can go out on the radio now? That, not, they have higher standards than Facebook. Oh, those are Shaparas. Uh, but uh, that position cannot be defended. How's that for a euphemism? That is a position of absolute ignorance that, be, that animals will cease to exist. But again, it's not unpredictable that the church would concede that animals were soulless or monistic. The concession is relatively recent. The early church uh, strongly held the opposite. The early church did not believe what the modern church does with respect to, church, to animals. The modern church, that's how I know that it's evolutionary positioning that made them do it because they're going to concede to the evolutionists, well, at least we'll give you that the animals all die and cease to exist and are annihilated and that God is evil. Because they always say, why is God evil, right? Every time there's a crisis, why does God allow evil? Which again is an elementary, a, a position that can, that, that does not require a great deal of thought to solve. But you would think the church would argue it better. We don't. The church is filled, like I said, in the Laodicean age. Uh, uh, they're Christless. And therefore unable to handle simple questions like that. Point being, yay a point. John Wesley, for example, in the late 1700s was secure. In his belief, he believed that the Bible, the scripture, was uh, the strongly held position was that uh, animals did not cease to exist. And he preached that in the late 1700s. He's just one example. There's hundreds and hundreds of examples, certainly in the apostolic church. And, and you see, this is really just a reasoning endeavor in that um, 
evidence has got to be accumulated. You have to take the time to find the evidence. The logic has to be applied, uh, which means uh, it will, as always, be required that the application or the I'm sorry, the applicable questions got to be discovered first and presented, hopefully in the right order. And there is always an avalanche of critical questions. Let me just throw a couple at you really fast. Can we agree, just agree with this, that animals did not sin? It's obvious. The scripture is obvious. Can we agree that they did not eat from the tree? They did not. Death, then, if you answered yes, was imposed on them. Why? Why wasn't death imposed on the angels, for example? Why aren't they a, a, re, a substitute? No, they're not. It is imposed on animals who are absolutely innocent. Why was the sin and death of Adam levied upon innocent creatures? And yes, we just what did we just do? We just opened the door and we're at Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 just entered the room. That is the day of atonement. That's the sacrificial system. That's Genesis 3.21. Genesis 3.21 is where God puts the blood of two animals on Adam and Eve. I believe they're obviously lambs. Christ is the lamb slain. They would portray Christ as the lamb. So they are the lamb, the lamb slain, and their blood covers the sins of Adam and Eve, and the, and the uh, fig leaves are removed, right? And so anytime I talk about the killing of animals, I have to go to the first animals killed. It's Genesis 3.21, and it must be fundamentally understood. The principle has always been this, the blood of the innocent substitute, the blood of the innocent substitute. That, of course, is Christ himself, right? It portrays Christ. His substitutionary death is required for atonement. Christ fulfilled this principle. Um, It's a cornerstone of our faith. The blood of Christ is is the removing agent of sin. Animals are therefore declared to be something by the fact that they are in that position. I want you to think about that. Animals are declared to be innocent at Leviticus 16. Why? Every animal that was sacrificed for the sins of man during the time of the temple offering periods, and it was probably millions Every one of those animals was established as eligible to be a substitute, which makes them judicially innocent. Does that make any sense? They have to be innocent. So the Bible declares them innocent. The sacrificial system, in order to be to provide the blood, they cannot be anything but innocent. They are, again, they are the type, if you will, the, the portrait of Christ. And again, to repeat, the animals have had no culpability. Of the three realms, the animals bear no fault. The angelic realm bears a fantastic amount of fault, a momentous amount. Humanity definitely uh, uh, contributes fault, but the animals have no fault. Nonetheless, they pay the price. The sins of mankind is a horror because of what has happened to the animal kingdom. Isn't that obvious? I hope that it is. To underline the point of Leviticus 16 and the entirety of the sacrificial system, all of which is and was a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. And of that sacrifice, innocent innocence is the fundamental. So let me repeat that again. Pound it in. Leviticus 16 is judicial information. It is testimony that the animals did not deserve to die. They, in fact, were not culpable in any way. Nonetheless, they died. Why? Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 7.26, Isaiah 53.9, 1 John 3.5, 1 Peter 1.18-19, 1, Matthew 27.24, 1 Peter 1.18-19, says that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's your Genesis 3.21. Should be on the board here somewhere. Right here. The blood coverage. Genesis 3.21. So we literally are still talking about that list here. How does he do it? I know. How does he do it? The lamb slain for Adam. Genesis 3.21. Without doubt was without blemish. Completely innocent. 
all of Leviticus 16, all of the sacrificial system, which testifies of Christ, John 5.39. The sacrificial system, all of the Old Testament, testifies of Christ, John 5.39. Therefore places the animals that were slain for the sins of Israel into the position of Christ, the innocent one. Is that a good thing? Yes, it is. They are in the Christ position. They are innocent. And what do they have? They had to qualify. To be a sacrifice, you must be innocent, at least in portrayal. And what do they have to have in in conjunction with that? They are innocent and they have blood. That's the principle. I cannot sacrifice, for example, something that has no blood. So why is blood and innocence, why is that the principle? And that, of course, now Leviticus 17.11 has come into the discussion, hasn't it? Because what, what does that say? It says the life is in the blood. The life. Who is the life is not just a statement. It's also a person. The life, Christ, is in the blood. Can we at least agree that there are no animals in the eternal lake of fire? You won't have that. Let me say really quickly, uh, Job chapter 3 proves that infants, that children, um, babies are not lost. It's definitive, Job chapter 3. The stillborn have existence. He makes it very clear. But there are people out there, there are theologians who say that unless you are born of a Christian family, it's called the household doctrine, unless you are born of a Christian family, that you will go into the lake of fire, that there will be a daycare system in the lake of fire. It's absolute. What's the word? Can I say crap? I don't think I can. I think so. You think I can? It's just, it's just blather. It's in, it's, I don't even know how to describe how foolish that position is. But it prevails. It's not on Facebook. It is now. It is now. It's just, I'm not sure what happened. Okay, we, so we lost Facebook for a while? No, we, we didn't get one. It, 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 it lagged for, for a long, long time, and all of a sudden, just in the last minute, it popped up on Facebook. Okay, so we so are live on Facebook. Just, did they miss the first, the whole point of this lecture then? Probably so. Okay. Like, there's a reason to go back to our website and watch the actual video when I hope to. Okay, so they have to go to cliffside.org because Facebook has, has uh, censored me once again, huh? Looks like it. Okay. Where am I? I'm a professional. I should find myself. We can at least agree that animals are not in the eternal lake of fire. That there are no animals. Animals are not subject to judgment or torment or utter darkness. Hopefully there are no one who thinks this is so. But I know there are many who think this is so. Again, it's, it's, it's a doctrine that is abhorrent. There is no basis for it. It's just pure evolutionary atheism taking control of the church. The church is so desperate to be considered, uh, theolo- I'm sorry, uh, intellectual, academic. They want their pastors to be uh, honored in these institutions of atheism. And that, of course, is foolishness as well. Okay. With all that as the basis now, there's this voluminous, protracted argument over why with regard to animals in the lake of fire. Assuming that everyone agrees that there aren't any, then we have this argument over why there is not any in the lake of fire. And what's the number one reason they say there are no animals in the lake of fire? Why is there not one animal in the lake of fire is the question. And they will say the majority of the Christian protestants, that commentary says it's... uh, for it's because animals cease to exist. That's why there's none in there. Or there would be the whole place would be filled up with animals. That's the argument. In other words, it's for animals to cease to exist, to be annihilated. They usually cite that only mankind is in the image of God, Genesis 126, which is true. It's on the list. Absolutely true. Only only mankind is in the image of God, Genesis 126. That's absolutely true. It's important that it be true. But then they then assume and propose that Genesis 126 implies that this truth extends to resurrection. In other words, you have to be in the image of God to be resurrected. 
And there's nothing in the Bible that says that. Only mankind is eligible for eternal life, they say, based on this particular position. Only mankind has existence. Only mankind has a living soul. Only mankind is nefesh shaya. Nefesh shaya. N-E-F-E-S-H-C-H-A-Y-Y-A-H. Now, I have pronounced that in different ways over, over the years. Uh, but I'm gravitated towards the Shah. So Nefesh Shayah, that is a living soul. That is what the Bible calls a living being. Nefesh Shayah. And it's easily proven false that only mankind has it. Nefesh Shayah is the Hebrew word at Genesis 120, 121, 124, 130, 27, 219, 910, 912, 915, 916, 12, 5. I could go on. Ecclesiastes 3.18, 4.1, Leviticus 17.11, Nefesh Shiah. And Nefesh Shiah is, defines, is defined in the Hebrew as a living being. It's a soul, it's life, it's self, it's person, it's will, it's emotion, it's breath, it's mind, it's consciousness. The breath of the spirit of life, Genesis 7.22, is the exact same description of Adam at 2.7. When God puts the breath of life into Adam, it's the exact same breath that he puts into animals at 120, 121, 124, 130. It's identical. The exact same description of Adam at Genesis 2.7 is assigned to the animal kingdom. So if animals are to be extinguished, then what's that mean for, for mankind? If you, if you assume, and of course the evolutionists are really thrilled with the church being as stupid. Can I say stupid? Uh-huh. I hope so. Yeah. Just in case I can't. Uh, will I get fined? Will they throw me off of the broad short way? This might be the only lecture I get on short way. <laughs> if man, if animals are, can be extinguished, if there's any possibility and there isn't, then mankind is identically at risk. The jeopardy is equivalent. They have the same description, the same words attached to them. The Bible is, however, <coughs> unequivocal. Humanity, <coughs> gosh, sorry. I get mad. Mad makes me cough. Humanity cannot be and will not be annihilated because existence originates with the one who is pre-existent. Who possesses pre-existence, beingness. Existence is given by the one who is. The one who is is the I am, the, the present tense, outside of time, I am of Exodus 3.14. And the, if you're outside of time, what, what must you be? You must be eternal. You must have existence for all eternity. He does. He says, I'm outside of time. I am the pre-existent one. Exodus 3, 4 and 3, 14. And the essence of existence, of course, is eternity. And all who have nefesh, shaya, have eternal souls. It's not the existence that is endangered, uh, but the destiny. The destination is the issue of, at physical death. Will it be in the city of the New Jerusalem? And watch my time now. Doing good. Will it be the city of the New Jerusalem as a destination, which is free, which is life, or will it be the second death of the lake of fire? Matthew 25, 41, on the list. I keep defending myself. Will it be the New Jerusalem? Revelation 21, 9 through 22, 5. Or will it be the second death of of the lake of fire, Revelation 21, 11 through 15. Two cities, you want to think of it as two cities? You'll see this all the time, the two city motif. You either have the city of the New Jerusalem or you have the city of the lake of fire. The issue of accountability and judgment is not the existence. The existence is guaranteed for the saved and the unsaved, for the redeemed and the judged. There is eternity. Existence is inviolable. It's sacrosanct. It cannot be removed. Once it's given, it's there. Will not be taken. Destiny is what is pronounced at the great white throne. Destiny of the great white throne is connected to the lake of fire. Destiny of the judgment seat of Christ is to the new Jerusalem. 
you have two trials. Those of us who are saved will be held accountable. But not for our salvation. Our salvation is, our, our citizenship into the city of the New Jerusalem is a guarantee, is warranted by the death of Christ. The white throne judgment is connected again to the lake of fire. So animals are immortal. They're living beings, as the Bible declares it. Nefesh Shaya. They are living beings. They have existence. They are immortal. The Bible declares it. They are not in the lake of fire. So what's the next question? Where are they? Are they in the New Jerusalem? I have this particular position on the New Jerusalem. It's 1,500 square miles wide, 1,500 square miles long. It's 1,500 square miles high. It is unbelievable. And I've suggested that there's 300 platforms. There's 300 stories in this. And each platform is that huge, the size of Alaska. Alaska is bigger than India. And so it's the size of Alaska plus the land connecting it all into one perfect square. 300, I'm sorry, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles is a massive amount of land. And I've done the math on how many square miles, 300 of those kinds. If I had five miles of soil and atmosphere, two and a half miles of atmosphere, two and a half miles of soil on each level. The Bible says there are many mansions. My father has given you many mansions. God, the Son, God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit is going to give us many in in his city, in his house, or many mansions. What do we think a mansion is? Because we are what? (laughs) We We have little tiny concepts of what he says. It's always big. Yeah, that's what we think. We think, yes, yes, this will be a a big house with a pool and a bowling alley. That's right. Perfectly said. It won't be that. He likes green things. You can imagine, can you not? Why is it so so high, 1,500 miles high? Think of the fact that there's, we have to have, it has to be an enclosure for there to be atmospheric pressure, right? So the top floors is... 1,500 miles from the earth. And it's going to be, I believe, this huge amount of property. He likes property. Land. Filled with water, filled with air. And there will be some kind of system, ladders, I believe. Genesis 28, 12. That will get escalators running over that way. That will get you from platform to platform. How long will it take you to... Travel to L15 or all 300 platforms that are 15 to see everything that's there. So how much? How much? Uh, how many square miles is that? It's 200. I can't even remember. I'm going to say it's 200,000. Uh, no, it might be quite, quite a bit more. I'll have to get back to you on the math on that. Anyway. Where am I? I'm a professional. I have to find out. I got to warn everyone that the subject of the immortality of animals will take years to resolve. I made, as I usually do, I made a list because the list makers are going to list. And I like to call it an unsystematic uh, outline. Uh, no particular order, just an inventory of the issues and questions that, that I believe cannot be omitted. So I just took the ones that I got to talk about. If I don't talk about these, I'm not doing the subject any justice. This is the musts of the musts, if you will. And what did I get? I got a list of almost 40 things, 39. And I'll add to it. I'll probably get up to 50 before I'm done. It's like it's like passing kidney stones. That's a joke that no one will get except me. So they just keep coming. So in other words, right now I've got 39 different areas in this subject that have to be that have to be addressed, and they all will come together into a whole, ultimately proving the immortality of animals. Everything from uh, quelia, which is Q U A L I A, for those of you who want to look it up, quelia, which is the individual subjective experiences, uh, phenomenology, mental state, personhood, our individuality, information, law. The laws of information are involved in that, in your individuality. The totality of the resurrection of Christ. 
the scope of his resurrection with the 39 pieces will come with too many questions to catalog. Can't get them all. So as the cliffside disclaimer states, we will not complete the task again. Are still, we're not going to get it done. You're really on your own. I'm going to get you as much as I can. 39 lectures in all likelihood, even though I have maybe seven or eight of these things right on this one. So maybe five or six lectures, I hope. But we're not going to complete it. It's an entry door and a sliding glass door. We're just not going to get it done. So you're going to have to go on your own. For example, Christ conquers death, Revelation 1, 17 through 18. He has the keys to death. He's in control of it. Death cannot control him. 2 Timothy 1, 10. Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality. That's what it says. Brought life and immortality. Jesus reestablished life and immortality by defeating and abolishing death. Revelation 21, 4. He wipes away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. The there in that sentence is the citizens of the new city of New Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is free. That's who has every tear wiped away, is those who are citizens of the new Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 15.55, death has no sting. John 3.16, John 11.25, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Christ makes the dead alive. It's not possible for death to hold Jesus Christ. He's the living God. Acts 2.24, Isaiah 25.8, Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, the central question, Jesus Christ ended death through his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 23, which is the Ishtar sermon, the first fruit sermon, right? Christ is the first fruits of all those, all those, all, let me repeat that, all those who are resurrected to life. How much resurrection is that? How much death did he con- conquer? Who are the all those? Examine for yourself the scope of his resurrection, the magnitude of it. I might suggest that you err on the side of innumerable, Revelation 7, 9. He says the people are innumerable. Can't number them. There's so many of them. Revelation 5, 13, Psalm 148, 7 through 14 will give you some clues as to why I'm trying to get you to expand your idea of who gets resurrected to life. Add to this C.S. Lewis's brilliant conclusion about his recently deceased wife. He said this, if H is not, and H is joy, uh, I think also Helen, I might not be right about that, but he abbreviated, he couldn't write her name, he was in such grief. It's in his book, A Grief Observed, which is absolutely fundamental reading. Uh, It's required reading for all Christians. The first half of it, he rages at God because he is so grief-stricken. And then the second half of it, he says, enough of that nonsense, it's time to think. And he says, if H is not, then she never was. One of the greatest things ever written, in my view, by any theologian. Lewis's meaning, as you know, was if his wife, Joy, H, or Joy, who's the same person, did not continue to exist after the death of her body, then Joy did, never did exist at all. That's what he was saying. Because she only lived, I believe she died in her 50s. Not positive. I know he died uh, 1963. I think he died on the same day that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Both of them had, uh, by today's standards, uh, a very short lifespan. Existence must be eternal in order to be existence, is what he was saying. Because if I only have 50 years and then I cease to exist, then all I had was cessation. Nefesh Shia is an eternal state. It cannot be temporal. Temporal states are by definition cessation, awaiting to be revealed as cessation. In the case of, if you say everything dies and, and ceases to exist, which is the evolutionary, monistic, uh, atheistic view. That's what they believe. They believe it fervently. And if you say otherwise, they call you an idiot. Because they believe evolution has been proven. But the core of evolution is not uh, is not the biology of it, even though that can be debated forever. 
The core of evolution is the fact that it believes in cessation of existence, which is a contradiction in terms. It cannot be temporal. Temporal states, again, are only, if, there's, if, if 50 years is all you get, then you, you cease to exist. Then you only had cessation. You never had nafesh shaya. A living being has no ending of being. Again, it's a destination. It's never annihilation. Never is annihilation being the consideration when nefesh shaya is assigned to a creature. Thus make the substitution. It's basic transitive mathematical property. If Abigail is not, then she never was. And I know she is because she's in the bedroom wanting a biscuit. She wants to go outside. I know she is, and I know she was, and I know the, she, the is overwhelms the was, if that makes any sense. If nefeshia animals are not, then they never were. So your position is, is that God made a bunch of beings, called them living beings, and then, and then annihilated them. That's your position. And you can see that that is an attack on the character of God. Nefeshia is eternal forever. You never say was. You always say is. Anything that is Nefeshia is is. There is was cannot be. It's incompatible with existence. You can't apply a past tense to Nefeshia ever. Now we have Ruach. R-U-A-C-H, the Hebrew word Ruach. Ruach. And it's a breath sound, Ruach. I hope I'm doing it justice. I'm not. Rach in Hebrew is wind, it's breath, it's mind, it's spirit. It is in a nefesh she'ah, the ruach is the breath of the nefesh she'ah. So you have ruach and nefesh she'ah all combined. And now here comes, end of the discussion, here we go. Genesis 1-2. The spirit of God, the ruach Elohim, is the breath of the us. In Genesis 1-2, the breath of the us. That's the breath of God. The breath of the triune God. At Genesis 7-15, Genesis, I'm sorry, at Genesis 7-15, Ruchah is the breath of life. That is in the animals. He says the breath that is him is in the animals. It's also the breath of the spirit of life in the animals at Genesis 7-22. At Genesis 2-7, when God breathed the breath of the spirit of life into Adam, the same word, and Adam became nefesh, shiah, exactly the same as the animals of Genesis 1-20, 1-21, 1-24, All of those, nefesh, shiah, have ruch, and all of those have the blood of life. And here comes, and that's right, the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17-11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus 17, 13 through 14. Leviticus, Leviticus 17 states definitively that if you fail to honor the blood of life, then you are doing something that causes you to be cut off. It is an, it's abhorrent to not honor the blood of life. The life is Christ, as you know. He is the life. So God is in the blood. That's what he is saying. I am in the blood of everything that has blood. All the blood, and I, I'm in it. And again, Leviticus 17 establishes it. The symbolism is obvious. Animals are to be treated with great reverence, Leviticus 17. If you don't, you get cut off. Cut off is not a good thing. They are, they are, they too are rohash, nefish, sheah. Eternal living beings, innocent substitutes. Now, I know the atheistic academians are pleased with the Bible equating humanity with animals. They want us to be the same as animals. I want us to be the same as animals, too, for different reasons, though. The evolutionists despise the resurrection of Christ. They despise it. The hatred for it is palatable. They wish for all to believe that resurrection is a myth. They teach the, the hopelessness, the doom of annihilationism. They teach nothingness. And they call that science. You, you see, if you perceive yourself as superior, and they do, all the elites of this country do, we are on the, on the brink of being an oligarchy. There's a little bit political there. I can't stop myself. When you have that kind of power, 
and you want that kind of power and you crave it and you have the love of money that's required to be in concert with it, then you will control as much as you call you can. Control is assumed. It's impossible to control those who are assured of the resurrection and the scope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can't control us. We are not controllable. Hedonism, which is atheism, only per ultimately, once you're an atheist, you become a hedonist. That's your only option. Hedonism only prevails on the hopeless. Budweiser lied. You don't just go around once in this life as a narcissist, low empathy, high control hedonist. That's not true. I know it was a commercial. But it was a thoughtless one. There is no gusto there. All there is is low empathy, high control, narcissism. It is appointed for mankind to die once. That's a very important verse. But after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Die once is Revelation 20.11. The first death, physical death. Physical death is die once. It's appointed for mankind to die once. But after this is the second death, the judgment. Now, you, you could have the judgment seat of Christ or you could have the judgment of the great white throne. Which city will you choose? The lake of fire, the city of the lake of fire, utter darkness, or the city of perfect, pure, always light, New Jerusalem. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14 through 15. Something that Budweiser ought to investigate. That's what their commercial is saying. You only go through this life once and you cease to exist. That's a great commercial, huh? This more hopelessness. Grab everything you can. Hedonism. One of the worst commercials ever made. They thought it was great. Who thinks like them? So they ought to investigate it. They ought to scrub that from their system. Just saying it's a pro tip. Okay, thus far we've gathered the low-hanging fruit. Everything I've given you is, is pretty much the easy stuff. Now it's going to get tough. We've got to get the extension ladders out now. And when we get into ladders, we're into Genesis 28.12. Do the angels come and carry the spirit's soul, the nefesh shayah, of the breath, because it can't go away. It can't cease to exist. There it is. The body has died. The body goes to dust. Do the angels come and carry the mind, consciousness, spirit, soul of the breath of life back to him who gave it? Again, Genesis 28, 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Do they carry the animals' souls who have died physically? How many animals have died? A lot. Especially counting the flood. How much work is this assignment that they have? If you concede that the angels must go and get the souls of every animal that dies, how much work is that? How many angels do I need? And it's only the faithful unfallen angels that are doing it. But what's the obvious question? How much work is this assignment of carrying the nefesh shayah back to the one who gave it? Why would the faithful angels have this task? Why do they have to do this? This seems like a lot of work. They're on that ladder. They never stop. Death is everywhere. Why are they tasked with this? And it's just, again, it's just the faithful angels. Why do the angels rejoice over one sinner who has re repented of his or her unbelief in Christ? Luke 15.10, John 11.25, John 8.24. When you believe Christ is the I Am, the angels rejoice. That takes you back to the ministering of the angel. They are rejoicing that we have done what they have done. Took them a while. They rejoice for us. Can animals see the angelic reality? The angelic realm. We're in the unseen. We're in an unseen. I got it right here. We're in an unseen period. The unseen age. Tremendous amount of angelic interaction all the way up to when Christ ascended. And then none. We can't see it. We can't see angels and we cannot see the dead. Now people will claim they do. Harry Houdini thought that they were all charlatans and he was right. 
people will claim all kinds of nonsensical things. Uh, they'll, they'll tell you that they can do wonders and signs and resurrections and all kinds of things. They can't. All you have to do is count how many planes they have and how big their house is. And I'll tell you what's going on. Humanity has not seen, we're in the unseen age. That's John 20, 29. He said, blessed are you, Thomas, who saw, but more blessed are those you believe because you saw. But what's coming is this age of unseen, the church age. More blessed are those who believe and without having seen. Now, we're very fragile. I'm very fragile. Uh, I get rattled easy. Abraham had to chase vultures away. Uh, we have we have this fragility as human beings. Humanity has not seen the spiritual kingdom, in my view, for two thousand years. Does the animal kingdom? Are they included in that? Can the animal kingdom have awareness of? The, can they? Do they have spiritual perception? Do they have spiritual realization? Hebrews thirteen two. We don't even know when we see an angel. Do the animals know? And this, of course, will demand a comprehensive approach to Balaam, Jonah, Elijah, and Daniel. Because, you see, consciousness, the mind, is impossible to explain. And has been impossible to explain outside of Genesis 2-7. You can't explain consciousness outside of Genesis 2-7, 120, 121, 124, 137.2. You can't explain it. There's no explanation for it. No one has and can describe the mechanism that accounts for consciousness. In the history of mankind, there's no theory, no explanation that has survived scrutiny. Not functionalism, not physicalism. Uh, Qualia is an unknown. Qualia is defined as individual subjective experience, self, emotion, pain, fear, seeing colors. All of this stuff, love, envy, anxiety, hunger, euphoria, euphoria, all of these and many more refer to as phenomenal properties of experience or phenomenal consciousness or perception or intentionality. Today, there is, and there's no time, because this is philosophy, no time to, to do it today. But we got to do it, because if we don't, we identify ourselves as somebody that doesn't, and that's a mistake. No time to revisit the arguments of philosophy of self, knowledge of self. It's a complete mystery. No one has solved it. Or has solved it. Humans have, have quilia. Animals have quilia. I am able to communicate with Abigail. It's really easy. She is able to communicate with me. It's really easy for her to do this. Abigail communicates with me. We exchange ideas. Gotta hurry. Mostly about food. When you guys leave, she's going to communicate to me about food. Because it's past five o'clock. Uh-uh. And we, I, she also communicates me, to me about my responsibilities. Um, there's, there are other circumstances. She, she wants to go outside. She has joy. She wants me to know she's happy. Um, she wants to go outside for play, for, to the bathroom. The point being, yay, a point again, finally, that I cannot communicate with rocks. As, try as I might. I'm not able to communicate with teenage boys. <laughs> things that are inert things that are passive <laughs> communication requires qualia, a mind, consciousness all of that is non-physical immaterial substance of humans and dogs have the identical system because we communicate with each other and that requires qualia, qualia. Dogs, humans have the same spiritual nature because the communication requires a spiritual nature. Communication and spirituality, a soul, a breath, a living soul, a living being. Ruach, nefesh, shiah. That's communication and that are connected. They're inseparable. I brought up Balaam and Jonah and Elijah and Daniel because in each case animals were aware of what God said in those Events, what God wanted, the angel of the Lord, that's Christ himself, Numbers 22, uh, 23 through, through 33. Christ himself was seen by Balaam's female donkey. The donkey spoke to Balaam because Christ enabled her, turned on her vocal system. She has a vocal system. And she spoke to Balaam and they argued back and forth. 
They discussed what happened. She tried to break his leg. It's an interesting story. Jesus Christ communicated. Think about that. He communicated with the donkey. And the donkey explains what Christ communicated to Balaam. So Balaam communicates. Christ communicated. God communicated with the donkey. To do that, what must that donkey be? That's right. must be Nefesh Shayah. With Ruach. Can't do it any other way. Some will say the rocks will cry out. I think that that is a... That is testimony of the fossil record. All of this narrative is evidentiary of the mind, the consciousness, the qualia, soul, spirit, the nefesh, sha'arulach, and both the donkey and Balaam. And anybody that has a horse knows that animal can think. It's emotional. It can communicate with you. You can communicate with it. It'll know what you want before you want it. Same thing with dogs. Um, cats. I mean, all kinds of animals are capable of it. God speaks to his animals. Mark 1, Daniel 6.22, Jonah 1.17, 1 Kings 17.4, and he commands them to do things. And they respond. How? What is that process? That's a spiritual process. It's not a physical process. The manifestation of the sound is physical, but not the communication. If God communicates with his animals and God communicates with mankind, the proof is once again that man and animals share a divine nature for the same reasons. He communicates. How much does he communicate to the animal kingdom? We are commanded to unceasingly pray. That's communication. Okay, now I've got to do this. I'm going to run out of time. I've got to read Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 21. I said in my heart with regard to the sons of Adam that God is testing them that they may see what they themselves are animals. For what happens to the sons of Adam and what happens to the animals is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. Who knows though, thank you, whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Okay, I might lose the broadcast people at this point. I hope I don't. Ecclesiastes 3.18.21 is, is a much argued verse and is used by those who teach that animals cease to exist at physical death as evidence that their monistic evolutionary position is God's intention. They use that verse all the time. God's will, they say, is to kill animals and make them cease to exist. Never mind what it says about God's character. It's insulting to say that about God. And, and he says so in Exodus 17.1-7. through they also cite Ecclesiastes 9.5 and Psalm, as I read earlier, 49.20. Allow me to tee up both of those. Nidmu is translated perish in, the, in your Bible. I guarantee it. Almost every translation says that animals perish. It's Psalm 49.12 and 49.20. Nidmu does not mean perish. It means compared to. So cross out perish and put compared to. Animals do not perish. A foolish man is compared to animals. There's no perish there. Why do these translators do that? Because they wanted to believe that animals cease to exist. Why would they want to believe that? Uh, we get to that in a minute. Perish is not in the Hebrew text, text of 49.12, 49.20. Psalm 49.11 is the context. The fool and the senseless person thinks he will be remembered, but he won't. He is going to be compared to a wild beast that no one remembers when it dies has nothing to do with the destination or annihilation. I'm sorry, has nothing to do with the annihilation. has everything to do with being remembered. Ecclesiastes 3.18 is a context for Ecclesiastes 3.21, which is an ironic rhetorical question. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who can know that? No one can know. What exactly can no one know? There is a test. That's the context. God is testing them, verse 3.18. God is testing them. What is the test? Man and animals have the same breath of God, the same everlasting breath of God. Ruach is at the Hebrew, is the Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes 3.19, where it says animals have the breath, they have the breath of God there. It's God's breath. They have the same one as the man does. It's the same. That's not the test. What's the test? I think I'm done. Actually, I have a little bit more to go on. There's the train now. I have to wait for the train to go by. 
<laughs> Broadcast, I think, is done now. The question is, is did we increase from minus 459 Fahrenheit on this Sunday? Yes. We did. Resounding yes. We got all the way up to uh, 457.9 minus degrees Fahrenheit. That's huge progress. Still uh, almost motionless. We've got so far to go. It's such an amazing subject. Please, I know I despair. When I lose my, I lost, lost a, uh, Jacob and uh, Ezekiel. I lost Sierra. Um, you know, Abby's right there. So you despair. I despair. So, at least I hope this helps somebody. It's a tough time. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, though we are so weak, that you have given us absolute incontrovertible proof of our eternity, our immortality and the immortalities of your creatures that you love in a way we cannot even imagine how much you love your animals. Mankind has forfeited its role to care for the animals. And we long for that day to return. And we know your resurrection has made it so. And someday we will be once again where we are supposed to be and there will be no more tears over the death of anything. We look forward to that day. We hope it's this September. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's kind of a joke, but not really. I hope it is this September. <laughs>